Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. So on the show this week, we've got a renowned mindfulness teacher by the name of Mark Coleman, who uh, has a particular focus on meditation in nature, which I have to say, I've been thinking a lot lately that I am not spending enough time in nature, and I wonder if that's a problem. Anyway, he got me thinking about that. He also, (laughs) you'll hear about his backstory, uh, which involved uh, having a mohawk at one point. So he he comes to meditation from an unusual background. Before we get into that, though, I just also just want to plug quickly that one of our previous guests on this show... Uh, Oren Sofer, who was uh, back on on podcast number 28. We've posted a new course from Oren on the 10% Happier app. It's called Emotional Agility, and it's really about how to be agile with your emotions. A lot of us, myself included, uh, find it really weird and squishy to talk about our emotions, uh, but they are there, and when you're unaware of them, uh, they yank you around. Um, and so Oren is actually a maestro at coming up with really interesting practical uh, techniques for dealing with your emotions. And if you check out the, the course on the app, the first session is free. Uh, back to Mark Coleman. Uh, brilliant guy, has a new book out, and as somebody who's been on the mindfulness scene for a long time, had a whole life story about which I was unaware and has a ton of practical wisdom for dealing with the voice in your head, which I, uh, I really uh, found quite impressive. So here he is, Mark Coleman. So I'm going to start with the question which I ask everybody at the beginning, which is how did you start meditating? Mm-hmm. So uh, I started meditating in the early 80s. Actually, the interesting story, my father originally took me to a transcendental meditation class when I was about 16. Our family is not in any way meditation inclined, but he had a health condition that his father said, if you don't do something about your stress, you're going to die. So how about a meditation class? And where was this? This what? was in a small uh, working town in the south of England. Okay. And then later, a few years later, and then I, I had the experience, and it was great, and I enjoyed it, but it sort of wasn't really that you know, impressionable. I just went on with my life. And I Did your dad stick with it? He did for some time. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And it actually was great. We all meditated together, and it was a very sweet family experience, my mother, my father, and me, and being quiet for 20 minutes a day. How amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, I moved to London, became a punk rocker. I was an anarchist. I was a very angry young man. And Were you in bands and stuff like that, or were you just a fan of the music? Just a fan of bands. Okay. Yeah, I couldn't did, play anything to Do you have, like, crazy piercings or anything like that? I had, I had a wild white mohawk. Nice. Big earrings. I used to make my own clothes. It was a really fun time. It was the boom of punk in the early 80s. And anyhow, and I was an anarchist, and there was a lot of sort of in a similar time like now where there was a lot of political underground against Thatcher, who was really dismantling some of the social fabric. And it's pretty angry, a lot of hatred, and I thought the problems of my mind were all because of the government and society and corporations and the way the society was running. And I ended up squatting. There was a big movement taking over public housing. There was hundreds of thousands of houses that were empty because of the mismanagement of housing in London. And so I took over this house that ended up being, I realized, was owned by a Buddhist housing cooperative. And I got to know them. And they, being Buddhist, they didn't kick me out. They said, you know, you should really check out your <laughs> own mind. <laughs> Go around to this 
meditation center around the corner and and you know maybe you'll actually find some you know some help to what what it is you're going through i was definitely searching i was definitely unhappy and was looking for something looking for a way out other than drugs alcohol and you know demonstrating on the streets what were we what do you think the source of the unhappiness was you know that's a really good question i um so the reason i wrote the book was because i had a lot of self-hatred which book you have two uh-huh the first the second book uh, Make Peace With Your Mind, yes, which is a book about how mindfulness and compassion helps free you from the inner critic. And I uh, had a tremendous amount of self-hatred and self-judgment. And that in itself was caused a lot of suffering. And I didn't understand it. I thought that was normal. And uh, so I, when I went into this Buddhist center and started meditating, I realized, oh, wait a minute. That's what's causing this pain. That's what's causing so much suffering is the way that, not the only cause, but one of the ways is that I'm torturing myself with self-judgment, self-criticism, undermining myself, um, and just carrying around a general sense of unworthiness, not good enough, and anything I did wasn't right or perfect. And how did you see that? I mean, in the most granular terms, can you describe how did that become clear to you? You just started noticing the kinds of thoughts you were having? Yeah, you know... You know, as you know, what happens when you're meditating, you start to see, you know, one of the things that's the loudest is the, is the radio station of your mind that's broadcasting a lot of thoughts. And I just began to see most of the thoughts were really negative, mm-hmm. angry, and they were a, a lot turned towards myself and really harsh and mean and cruel and critical and really just difficult to be with. Mm. It wasn't all that was there. There was plenty of other stuff, too. I was also judgmental about other people in the world and, you know, the whole other variety of meandering thoughts. But there was definitely this strain of, um, you know, heavy, negative-oriented thinking. It sounds like you were hard to live with, and the person who was taking the brunt of you being a pain in the butt was you. Yes, Yes, which I think is true for many people. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. we, we are I the could hardest, have been describing myself. <laughs> we are the hardest person people to live with. We're our own worst critics, and we uh, tend to orient towards what's wrong, what's negative, what's problematic, what's deficient, and therefore have a distorted sense of ourselves and feel really uh, bad about ourselves. From an evolutionary standpoint, why do you think we are, have been bred for that, that propensity? Well, I think it's the negativity bias. You know, we you know grow up in the savannah or wherever it is in the wild, and we we you know we've been trained, and we survive through looking at what's threatening, what's problematic, what's different, what's fearful, and so the brain's very heavily oriented. You know, neuroscience is really illuminating that that negativity bias you know, lives in today in the way that we scan, we're still scanning the environment as if looking for that deadly threat, but except it's turned inward and also turned outward too. But it's that hardwired orientation that we, you know, we can start to unhook with meditation practice. So evolution didn't care about happiness. Evolution cared about getting your genes into the next generation. So this threat detection reflex kept us alive and miserable. Yes. Perhaps not so miserable back then because there was plenty of threat to be oriented towards. Now there's less threat and there's more time for rumination. And, you know, we also have social media and a whole other realm of things to compare ourselves to and all the ways that we're not good enough and cute enough and smart enough, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk a lot more about this, the inner critic. But just staying with your chronology for a moment. Mm-hmm. So you, you go on a retreat. Is that what happens? You, you're squatting in these people's house. They say, cool, you can stay. 
we suggest you go on a retreat, and you said, sure? No, that, there was. I just went to the, the center around the corner, and I oh, started I taking classes, and I just – actually, what happened is I walked into the center, and I saw these people milling around. They were working, cleaning the place, and as you may have had this similar experience – there was, I saw the, the look in their eyes, and there was something about these people that had a quality of presence mm-hmm. and purposefulness and clarity. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew I wanted it. <laughs> I was like, they're onto something, mm-hmm. and I want to know how they got to that place. That's the way I felt when I started when I met Dr. Mark Epstein, who has been a guest on this podcast and was one of the first practicing Buddhists I ever met. And then a lot of these sort of paleo jubus that he met me <laughs> introduced me to like Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg they had a something that mm-hmm. uh, that I coveted yeah it's tangible you can see it you can feel it there's a there's a brightness in the eyes mm-hmm. and there's a certain calmness in the presence and it was very different than I I'd, I'd grown grown up in a you know somewhat rough working class northern England environment and uh, the qualities of meditation presence were not what was I was exposed to? It was much rougher. It was, uh, you know, it was, it was an aggressive kind of culture. And so, seeing this quality in these people, it's like, oh, there's another way to be here. And I started meditating, and I started to get a little intimation. I mean, as you know, it's slow. It's slow to begin to feel and develop these qualities. But I began to have a taste, and also something about seeing them gave me a, a sense of faith that that possibility was available if you put the time and the effort and the practice in. That's important. Um, and faith, which is a loaded word, can also just be confidence. Yeah, trust. confidence or conviction yeah. or you know, just the awareness that there's a possibility of a way to develop something that seemingly wasn't even on my, on my radar yet. Once I saw it, it was like, oh, that seems like a really smart way to live. So what did you do next? Did you like shave the mohawk? And what, 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 I, what? <laughs> I shaved the mohawk. I gave all my clothes away, and I moved into uh, basically a kind of a monastery, like a, a retreat center that was way out in the country, and I dropped out of college, much to the shock of my family and friends, and I just really wanted to go deep into the practice of meditation and Buddhist teaching, and it seemed like that was more important than anything, and so I was ready to give up everything for it. So did you go into it? Were you a monk uh, on I was silent in, retreat? I was in a tradition where you could have – there was an ordination process. I didn't get ordained, but I was very much involved in that subculture of Buddhist practice in England. What tradition? It's called the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order. They're now called the Tri Ratna Vandana Sangha, I think. The first one was easier to pronounce. Yeah, I know. It's English. It helps. <laughs> <laughs> so is it Thai? It was an integration of um, Tibetan and Theravada and some Zen developed by Sangharakshita, who was a Buddhist monk from England in the 40s and 50s, met all the great masters coming out of Tibet in the 50s and 60s, and then developed uh, his own brand of Buddhism that had an emphasis on community, on right livelihood, and very integrated practice, actually, very much in the world. And so I studied with them for many years, and at some point I realized I was itching for something more closer to the original tradition, closer to Asia and India and the Buddha. And so I went to India, and then I met uh, my first Vipassana teacher, Christopher Titmus. Christopher Titmus, yeah. yeah. Okay, he, he, I've heard his name. He's based in England, developed, uh, founded 
Gaia House, co-founded Gaia yes, House. Yes, yes. And wonderful. Which is a famous retreat center in, in the UK, yeah. Yeah, and uh, wonderful Vipassana teacher. And Controversial? Yes, yeah. somewhat. Yep. yep. Why? I think, um, well, he's he's radical. He has a certain uncompromising quality. So I think in, in Buddhist tradition in general, many teachers have this kind of pretty strong Cut, like cutting through no am I allowed to say that yeah you are I'm not <laughs> go ahead um, and uh, just um, not pandering to people's comforts and uh, need to have it easy and 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 cushy and uh, very very on fire at the time in his own awakening and teaching and I was riveted. I studied with him in Bodh Gaya. I went back to Bodh Gaya, the place the Buddha got enlightened. And I was there for every year for 10 years. And it just completely lit up my practice. And also being in that Asian milieu really helped kind of kindle a deep love of the teaching and the tradition and the practice. But if you're going to go to Asia, why not have an Asian teacher? That is a good question. Well, I did have an Asian teacher. So I also studied with a teacher called Punjaji who is from the Advaita Vedanta tradition. And of, the hin- of Hinduism. Yeah. 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 And, okay. v- and Advaita Vedanta is quite close to much of Buddhist teaching. And he was both a lover of the Buddha and of Vedanta. And so um, I was actually studying both. And then I went to Thailand, to Ajahn Bodhidasa's monastery, and studied, studied a little bit there. Um, but to me, it was less about going to Asia to study Asian Buddhism, even though I was falling in love with that, the context of that tradition, it was really falling in love with the practice of awakening, of of insight, of freeing one's mind and heart from suffering. Okay, so you just used a bunch of sort of classic Buddhist jargon. Can you just put that in English for me? Because um, these are alluring terms, awakening. You know, it's Mm -hmm. a really, I don't know, I want to be awake, um, except for, you know, when you're not. Well, yeah, when I don't. Um, uh, freeing from suffering. Um, w- w- just if you had, if I'm, I'm forcing you now, proverbial gun to the head, what do you mean by that in the plainest of English? How would you explain it to your former neighbors in North England? Good question, which I may be going back to in a couple of months to do that very thing. I, I just found out that many of my school friends are actually becoming interested in mindfulness, which is huh. amazing to me, In uh, given that it's you know, seemingly a long way from where I am now in San Francisco. Um how would I put that? You know, the simplest way I like to talk about it is how we show up and meet whatever moment is in front of us with awareness, with kindness, with understanding. Right? So no matter how many spiritual, mystical, wonderful, profound experiences you have, and they, of course, inform who you are and how you live, the practice is always comes down to how are you showing up in this moment? How am I? So today I took me, you know, 10 extra hours to get here because of delayed flights and cancellations. And by the way, you, don't, you seem unruffled. Well, here we are. <laughs> and and so, the, so, the, so the, pra- the invitation of the practice is, you know, awakening has to mean how are you living and responding in this moment? Are you living with? awareness and presence or you're living with reactivity 
and self-absorption. For and example. that would be to be asleep. In other words, to be on autopilot. Yeah, to autopilot, be on autopilot, sleepwalking through everything. Unconscious, reactive, <clears throat> resentful, blaming everybody, not taking responsibility, and being self-absorbed and self-centered versus being aware, being present, whether it's to your children or to your colleagues or the bus driving down the road. And also, you know, there's a lot of pain and difficulty and struggle in life for all of us in different ways, internally, externally. How do we meet that with care, with kindness, with compassion? So by, from my experience, what arises out of all this deep practice that we do in meditation and in in, in, in in whatever spiritual practice you're doing, is um, the ability to get outside of oneself and to be able to be more present and caring and awake to what's here, as opposed to, as you say, autopilot, being asleep, being reactive, being lost in one's thoughts, being lost in one's self-critic, and etc. Well, your self-critic should tell you that you just did a great job explaining that with no preparation, um, and I, you didn't know I was going to ask you to do that. So that was very good, and I think very compelling and extremely comprehensible and relatable I, universally. Um, you, you, so you, you walked us through the various teachers with whom you studied. What do you do now? So I am mostly a meditation teacher, so that forms the basis for many, many different things that I do. So um, I teach out at Spirit Rock Meditation Center, which is a center in, in California. Where I did my first 10-day silent that's retreat. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And Joseph Goldstein, who taught that retreat, sent me a note over the summer saying he was going back to teach it, and he expected that they would have a plaque erected in my honor. <laughs> Did, they didn't. They didn't. No. That's cute. Well, who knows? In time. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Harris sat here on this very cushion. <laughs> I was sitting on a chair, man. I'm not lim- limber enough to sit on a cushion. Right. Yeah, yeah. It bends you. hurts your knees. So, yeah, I'm a meditation teacher there. But my – so I have a lot, a lot of different avenues. I think of myself as a bridge builder from the tradition of meditation and Buddhism to different – facets and communities. So one of the things I'm passionate about is integrating mindfulness and meditation in nature. Mm-hmm. So I Which was the subject of your first book. If right, I Awake yeah. in the Wild. And I love the wilderness. I love nature. I love this earth. And I love particularly how we can learn to bring this practice of mindfulness, bring a contemplative awareness to being outside. So rather than just doing it, biking it, you know, conquering it, you know, scaling it, to actually bring that same quality of awareness that you might do to yourself or your children or whatever it is you love to, to nature. And then, and then in doing that, you actually become much more receptive and uh, open to being touched and also being taught by nature. Nature is, I, I think, the perennial teacher of wisdom, of letting go, of connection, of love. So I How does it. nature teach that stuff? It does it simply by it because it is that. So, for example, so the, so one of the key teachings of both Buddhism and many other uh, traditions is is the teachings of change. Right, everything's impermanent, transient, fragile, and unreliable. Right, including our body, including everything. So you go out and you sit in the woods. You see the whole thing is changing. Whether it's the wind in the trees. The grasses are both, you know, and right now they're flourishing, but there's also decay. The trees are, you know, sprouting blossoms, but also have dead limbs. There's skulls and bones and debris on the ground. Like everywhere you look is an expression of change and transience. There's nothing about being outside that's not changing. 
you know, when we're in our rooms, like this room we're in now, it's built to keep out change, mm-hmm. to keep out, you know, uh, obstacles and, 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 you know, we, hin- wind and garments. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we don't, we, we get, we get to the, believe this, this, this idea that things are kind of stable and steady and, mm-hmm. you know, and they sort of on one level, another level, nothing is stable, nothing is, is, is reliable. So, you know, or the sense of connection, right? So one of the things I was just teaching up in uh, northern New Mexico, at this wonderful center called Valacitos, it's a wilderness ranch, and we drink from the spring. And I say to people, you know, you know, this is the idea that, you know, everything's connected and we're all, you know, we're intimately woven into the, the web of life, and that's a nice idea. And then I say, well, think about it. We're mostly made of water, right, 70% water, and we're drinking from this mountain spring, and after a week, you are mostly that spring. <laughs> and that's not just a nice idea. You actually, it's true. That, bec- that becomes your cells and your blood and your tears. And, right? So it's when you s- spend a lot of time in nature quietly with some awareness, that stuff starts to permeate. Or, or we simply walk out of our office or our house where we're having a stressful time and we look up, even if in the, we're in the city and we see the sky or we look at the, the clouds or we feel the wind it takes us out of that small sense of self. And we see there's something, there's a bigger reality. Right? That is tremendously stress-relieving. It's also wisdom in that, oh, yeah, there is this bigger thing outside of this little microcosm of me. Mm-hmm. So there's just so many ways that nature's teaching us, not like you should learn this, but just like here it is. If you, if you spend enough time there to listen, you know, now you can get that from going down to Central Park. You can... See whether it's change or, you know, openness or connection, or you know, and then it opens the heart. You know, we we go outside because we love it. It's beautiful. You know, fall leaves or the spring grasses or, uh, I you know, yesterday I was driving in California. I saw this little two-day-old little Bambi. You know, mm. breaks your heart open. And it's beautiful. Okay, so I didn't plan to bring this up, um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say uh, I'm gonna bring something up that's gonna be a little jarring and heavy and maybe a little horrifying because it's on my mind right now, and it relates to the issue of impermanence. <clears throat> I found out today that uh, a very close friend of mine uh, was on a plane that went down in the Bahamas with her two young children. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, and so all of my friends are horrified. This has actually been kind of, kind of a big news story in the news today. Her name is Jen Blumen. She was uh, just a wonderful human being, and her children are beautiful, and mm. her the children's father is... Survived and uh, wasn't with them, and so obviously he's in a really tough mm. way. Mm. But the conversations we're having today are about impermanence. Mm-hmm. And wake up this morning, everything's normal. All of a sudden, you get a phone call: uh, Jen Blumen is missing. Mm. And um, you know, and a lot of these conversations, we're talking about this, and then talking about how easy how we are programmed for denial and so we may be in touch with impermanence right now but in a week two weeks three weeks we're probably not going to be thinking about it we'll be just as consumed with the petty obsessions that were consuming us in the 30 seconds before we heard what happened to our friend Mm -hmm. so i just wonder if you have any thoughts on how not to get you know now that we are tenderized our group of friends how could Mm -hmm. we stay um tenderized to this um to this inarguable fact mm-hmm. of of human existence mm-hmm. yeah i think you know and 
I mean, the gift of, and I'm really sorry for your loss and for your friend's loss. And um, I think the the gift is it does tenderize us and it does open us to appreciating those that are here, right? The husband, your friends, and not taking each other for granted, your kids, people you love. And that happens for a while. And as you say, over time, it's it's the built into the hard wiring, I think, that we have amnesia around loss, around death, around fragility. And we do go back into autopilot and we get caught up in petty things that we can't believe we're getting caught up in given where we were a month ago with the tenderness. Um, and I think it does behoove all of us to keep turning our attention to it. You know, whether it's, you know, for me, I live sort of semi in the country when I drive past roadkill, I look at the roadkill. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, right. Mm-hmm. That was a deer mm-hmm. yesterday. Now it's dead. Um, I've just been doing this practice that I, I learned from wonderful teacher, Venerable Analio. And it was, when it was reflection around death, but I added a piece where I say to myself, one less. Mm-hmm. So with breath, mm-hmm. one less. Fabulous meal, one less before I die. This wonderful conversation I'm having with you, one less. This time on retreat or in the country, one less time. This full moon, it'd be one less full moon. And I keeping that close to my to heart and my reflection that each time I do something, oh, this one less time, I'll have a fabulous time with my sweetie. What do you say to people who say that's morbid and depressing? Yeah, it definitely can feel that way. Um, but it's actually not. The, the irony is it makes you wake up and appreciate the preciousness and the beauty because we just don't know. I mean, I'm flying out here to New York. I was on the plane. The plane hit some turbulence. Maybe this is it. You know, how did I leave my friends and family last time I talked to them? You know, was it was it really, really with that knowing that this could be the last time? My parents are in their late 70s. I really, t- every phone call, like, this could be the last phone call and I really want to be present for them. So I think it's actually, it can be morbid but I think that's if we have a you know a resistance to the the truth. You know, I think one of the gifts I feel like I've given, gotten from my Buddhist practice is, yeah, things come and go. That is the reality, and I feel like I've learned over thirty years of practice to soften into that. And it doesn't mean I feel depressed. It just means like, oh, I want to really do you know do the best. You know, when I'm you know. When my flight's, flight's delayed, and and the the man behind the counter said, "Wow, you you really, you really seem to be in a good mood." It's like I don't want to take it out on you. He's a nice guy, just doing his job, and um, I want to show up as the best I can. That's what it makes reminds me to do. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. 
You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected. After investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. It's interesting you talk about this one less practice Mm -hmm. because and practice is the key word here. So my friends and I right now are attuned to impermanence. As you say, we are programmed to eventually start tuning out from that and back into our petty desires and 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 uh, competitions and whatever else is going on in our in our respective lives. But if you make a practice out of it, just as you, I mean, there are many ways to do this, but you, one example being one less, mm-hmm. then it kind of pounds it into your neurons mm-hmm. in a way that is. Mm-hmm is, I think, quite useful. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me, though, because I've done started doing this practice where once a week I volunteer in a hospice for three hours. Mm. And I can, it's easy for me to walk in and out consumed with whatever baloney I'm, I had been, uh, I've been concerned with overall. You know, I, definitely I tune out of that stuff in a pretty powerful way when I'm in there. Mm-hmm. But it's not uncommon for me to get back on my phone in the Uber on the way home. Um, and that was less common when I was start when I started doing it eight months ago than it is now that I've kind of habituated to the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's powerful. What the Buddha would call delusion, yep. which we could just describe as ignorance or or confusion or w- w- anything in that family of synonyms, uh, um, is is is. Somebody said to me recently. So the Buddha talks. I was having lunch with some friends. Uh, in the city, and they're both pretty avid Buddhist practitioners, although they're in business. And uh, one of them said to me, you know, we, desire and, and aversion get all the headlines in Buddhism, but delusion is is, is the joker. Uh-huh. You know, it's the, it's the trump card. Um, and I, I think there's something to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. We walk around. We don't see the veil that we're walking around obscured it's by. The fish we're sw- it's the yeah. water we're swimming in. Totally. We're a fish. Totally. And we're in our little bubbles, our little microcosms, our little stories, projections, perceptions, and ideas about the way the world is and who we are. And it's mostly, you know, what in Hinduism they call Maya, illusion. It's just stories we make up to, you know, the brain's a meaning-making machine. And we believe it. We buy the press release. And then you have these moments like you've had today and it, you know, reality shatters through. It's like, no, it's not actually going to just continue on forever. It's actually going to be really bumpy at times. And we're going to lose things and lose things we love. And we're going to be woken up to not just going to sleep. You know, and I think most practice, like in Buddhist practice, is trying to wake us up. You know, That's what's meant by awakening. It's this sort of a, um, a grandiose term mm-hmm. when said without the proper context or understanding. But the way you're describing it is riveting. You know, I mean, it's not, um, it's not a, a bromide. It's a it's a it's a crackling, lively, applicable goal. Yeah, and it does Practice. make and it does make life very alive and very mm-hmm. juicy and very um, you know vivid. Um, 
So, you know, it was interesting. I was, I was, I was aware as I was having this very kind of hassly day, you know, long plane delays and, and just, you know, annoying, the annoying part of flying and delays. And I noticed that as soon as I was on the plane and I, I would just look out the window and I was just, I'm riveted by you know, landscapes and flying over deserts and mountains and and it, the the whole drama of being delayed completely disappeared. Like I know I was going to be late for this interview, and um, and it just disappeared. Mm-hmm. You know, because being able to be present, just like okay, well I'm on the plane, I'm going to get there when I get there. What an amazing skyline going over Nevada or going over the Rockies or wherever we were. You know, so it also helps us, you know, come out of the the drama. Yeah. You yeah, know, there's a lot of drama, a lot of self-created drama. Yeah. Well, speaking of self-created drama, so the 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 new book, Make Peace with Your Mind, mm-hmm. uh, really talks about the inner critic. In mm-hmm. fact, in there, as you told me before we came on, when after I sheepishly admitted to you that I hadn't read the book, which makes me the worst <laughs> podcast host ever, uh, you very kindly uh, pointed out that one of the things in there is an inner critic toolkit. Mm-hmm. I think will be of extremely high interest to people listening to this podcast. So can you talk about what's in there? Yeah. So there's a whole list of practices, probably, I don't know, 20 practices or so. The the two basic baskets of the practices, one mindfulness, one compassion. And so we start, as I think with anything, we have to start with, with mindfulness, with awareness. And so we bring that quality of mindful self-awareness to ourselves and we start to see what's happening in our minds. What is our mind saying? Can we see the difference between a judgment and what I call a negative-laden judgment versus just a, a, a random thought or an evaluative thought? Can we see – so can we first just be aware when the mind's judging? Because mostly it's it's so automatic we don't even notice. We don't even see it just rambling on. You should have done this. You could do that better. Why haven't you gone to the gym? You should lose weight, yada, 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 yada. And yeah, so, I'm looking at you actually, and I'm thinking <laughs> he's so lean. Does he eat Whole Thirty? Is he a vegan? Why am I such a fatty? You like that? Is that's just happening all the time? It is. So first, we have to just recognize. Oh, that's a judgment. Different than oh, this wall's gray, and I, you know, yeah. you know, it's like the judgment and the and the the piece about the judging thought that we have to understand is it's not it's not neutral, which may be obvious. It ha- it's it has an implication about who we are as a person that's not good enough. Mm-hmm. It's not just, oh, you know, you know, you should have shaved today. And it's like, oh, you didn't shave today. You know, you look terrible. You really, I mean, you can't even shave. You You're going to die alone. Huh? You're going to die alone. Yeah. It's that's like, right, that's right. where you get, that's where end up on the railway bridge. No one loves you and forget <laughs> it. You're a loser. Why bother, right? So everything leads back to that fundamental sense. You're, you're, you're not good enough. You're not lovable. So we first have to see that. And then it's useful to name it. Oh, there's the judge. Hello, old friend. You're back again today. Right? Joseph gave me this practice of counting judgments, right? So I was on these long retreats at Insight Meditation up in Massachusetts. And... You know, it can be comical to count the judgments. 123, 495, 862. And you start to see, this is ludicrous. It's just this machine that keeps cranking out these inane, except painful, jabs. And so... He's got this other thing where he thinks, he says, pretend 
all of your thoughts are coming from the person sitting right. next to you. Because I hate that person sitting next to me. <laughs> right. He That's is so the worst. Mean. <laughs> <laughs> so first you've got to know the, the landscape of the thoughts. And then what's really interesting is to pay attention to what your relationship is to them. Do you believe them? Do you let them go on and on and on? Do you take them in? Do you feel um, like they're true? That's a really good question to ask. Because often we think, oh, my thoughts are what is true. I mean, I believe all my thoughts. They're yeah. objective truth. Yeah. It's a news ticker. Right. And when we really pay attention and we, and we, we you know, so I have people on my courses write down their judgments, you know, top 10 judgments, pretty painful list, but write them down anyway. You know, I'm a loser. I'm never going to be loved. I'm stupid. I'm too overweight, whatever it is. And, and when we actually bring a, a sort of scrutinizing, you know, awareness to that, and we read them, it's like, well, that's not really that accurate. You know, maybe, you know, I could be a little better in shape or I could, you know, be kinder from time to time. But it doesn't mean to say that I'm a loser, horrible, mean person. So we're, we're noticing the thoughts. We're look, looking at our relationship to them. We're seeing how much we believe them. We're seeing how much we give it the time of day. Right? So ultimately, one of the the fruits of doing this work is we become somewhat disinterested. It's just like this little yapping dog in the back of our mind. Eh, not good enough. You should do this. You should do that. And if we can see, if we've become if we're trained to see the judge, to not buy into it, to not believe it, to not give it so much attention, it doesn't matter whether it's here or not because it's just like, you know, it's like static in the background. It's a similar way in meditation. You know, we have thoughts, plenty of thoughts, distracting thoughts, fearful thoughts, wanting thoughts. Over time, you know, they have less stick. You know, of course, we still get pulled away into thoughts and dramas and stories. But over time, we care less whether the thoughts are there or not. It's just not such a big deal, not so alluring. We lose the fascination. So... We want to have that kind of relationship to the critic where... How can we have that relationship if we're not meditating? Well, you don't need to be meditating to pay attention to your mind. You just simply need to notice what's happening, whether you're thinking, what kind of thoughts you're having. Right. Are they judgmental? Do they have negative tone? Is there some implication about you in those thoughts that you're a unworthy, bad person? Just... I get, um Easier to do that if you're engaged in the daily training of doing it, which yeah, is meditation. For sure. You know, meditation definitely is the lab for cultivating that self-awareness. But once that's, you know, initially developed, I think you, you can do it anywhere. Mm -hmm. and you just simply learn how to pay attention to the inner dialogue rather than just being lost in the external world. And you're tracking, so you're tracking the thoughts, you're tracking belief, you're tracking relationship, and then you're tracking how they impact you. Because the thoughts, you know, the critic manifests mostly as words, but then it, you know, it affects us physically, emotionally, energetically. So, for example, I can be sitting at my desk. I love to write, and I love that sort of few hours in the morning where I just get to, you know, play with words. Now you should come write my books. I hate writing. <laughs> okay, sign me up. <laughs> you just have to learn how to use the F-bomb a lot. All right. That, that's, I how I that's how I roll. <laughs> I Not on this that. podcast <laughs> because I'm, we're owned by Disney, but the books – all mine. Uh -huh. Anyway, so you're I, – I, I keep tearing you out of whatever you're trying to say. <laughs> so you're at your uh, desk so happily writing, which, which I already envy you for, but go ahead. And then I might remember like I may have showed a poem to a friend the day before and they had some sort of slight, you know, not so flattering comment about it. 
And so I'm writing away, and then I remember that thought, and then suddenly I start to feel kind of heavy and and foggy and kind of blah, and and then I, and I ask myself, well, what's going on? I, I was loving writing, and suddenly the whole kind of juice is just sapped away out of me. And then I remember, oh right, I had that thought. My I showed my friend the poem. I could tell the look on his face; he wasn't really into it. And then I just realized that, and then the thought came: Well, you're not a writer, you know, mm. you're hopeless. Mm-hmm. Just why bother? Yep. And so that thought—I didn't catch the thought, but the thought then made me, you know, create that sense of fatigue, foggy brain, kind of lethargy. And then, last thing I wanted to do was write. I've lived in that state for weeks at a time, uh-huh. mindlessly, uh-huh. even post meditation. Uh-huh. If the circumstances of your life are acute enough, right, you can get. I can get there. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, you know, when you're doing, you know, whatever show that you're doing and you haven't maybe been so attuned yeah. or on the ball or got your facts wrong. Yes. And then, of course, people are hammering me on Twitter or <laughs> or I'm, I didn't get something I wanted and professionally. Yeah, I can right. I can revert that state that you're occupying at your desk. I can live there for weeks. Right. And then, of course, the critics. So so particular and distorted in what it sees, right? You may have had a fantastic show. 95% of the show was fabulous. And then the couple of things that were just slightly off, and of course, what do we notice on, what do we focus on, is, you know, what we could have done better. Okay, so but so you, so we're still on step one here of the toolkit, but but you're talking about this, you, you, whether powered by mindfulness, what, whether powered by meditation, formal meditation or not, a kind of uh, mindfulness of our thinking, the w- whether it's laden with value, negative value judgments, what kind of – are we believing it? What kind of physical uh, effects is it having? And I guess my question on, uh, on that is um, this requires a, some wherewithal, does it not? It really requires some intention to do, to do this because most of us walk around locked into the movie. You know, we're, we're in the matrix. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes some real intention to – be aware that we are not our thoughts, and to continue to come back to that, it does take energy because otherwise we're sucked up in the thing. We're not seeing it's 24 frames per second. Right, right. And I think the biggest motivator is to realize how much pain (laughs) it causes because once we get that, it's like, oh, this is miserable. I mean, so a big turning point happened for me. I was some years into my meditation practice. I was sitting meditation, just no idea exactly what happened before, but and I was following my breath or doing what I was trying to do you know, as we meditate. And I could, then my critic was just assaulting me with just, you're just not good enough, blah, 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 blah. I don't remember exactly what it was saying, but it was really painful. And I, I suddenly, for whatever reason, as meditation could do sometimes, it, I took a step back. And I felt, rather than being a friend of the critic, and normally I'm just believing in, yes, yes, I should have done that, and yes, I'm bad, and no, 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 I started to feel how it felt in the heart. And I felt like, well, this is really painful to just listen to this tirade over and over and over, saying most of the same old stuff, but really harsh and you know, in a way that if someone had said that a friend or a stranger had been doing that same kind of you know, litany of woes, you know, I would have felt collapse. I would have, I would have you know, felt so withered and, and, and battered by them. But with our with our in with our own minds, we don't see it so much, and so we let it go on and on, and that's why I think the practice is illuminating. When we cultivate mindfulness, we do start to have that space where, at times, we step back and go, "Wow, this is really painful, or delusional, or unnecessary," and 
So it's really important to see that the critic, when the critic's on its case like that, we, it's attacking our fundamental worth and value as, as a person. You know, And we all make mistakes, and we all do what we do, and it's never perfect. Because Have you ever met a perfect human being? There's no such thing. I have a two-year-old. He's perfect. <laughs> okay. Therefore, he poops in his pants. So I guess he's not perfect. <laughs> Almost. Almost perfect. Yeah. So, um, so we, we set ourselves to these impossibly high standards. And that's where the second basket of practices come in, which is compassion. Because it's so painful, what happened in that meditation was I shifted from being an ally of the critic to an ally of my own heart because I actually felt in my heart it felt like it was being bruised. When you say heart, you actually mean I felt chest like, cavity. I felt like in somewhere in my chest I could feel it was like a wound that was being like stamped. Hmm. I mean not literally obviously, but it just felt like – I just felt you know really – Battered, yeah, and uh, and I think our critics do batter. I think personally that the 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 leading cause of depression is the inner critic that that voice that's telling us that we're bad, that we're stupid, mm-hmm. that we're hopeless, that we're loser, we're not good enough. You listen to that for ten, twenty, forty years, you know, you're going to feel mildly depressed, or if not seriously depressed. Yeah. So I've done plenty of battle with the black dog. Yeah. I, yes. I, yeah. I know. I'm thing. sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the nature of your work. You have, you know, you're in the, you know, the critic business in a way because people are watching you and and evaluating you at every step, whether it's the producer or the audience or yeah. It also runs in my family and uh-huh. yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. So so the compassion uh, component is really important too because it's so painful. It's one of the most painful things that. And I work with students all over the world in the meditation context mostly. I've also been a therapist and a coach and consultant and, and all of that. But no matter what work I'm doing and what, who I'm working with, I see this phenomena play itself out. People, you know, they could be running, you know, tech companies in Silicon Valley. They could be successful surgeons and parents and, you know, talk show hosts and, you know, and – that same voice will just diminish any sense of well-being or success or accomplishment. And so it's essential that we find some way to, to meet the pain of that. You know? And so in Buddhist practice, the, the way to turn towards suffering is with kindness, with compassion, right? which is, of course, very easy to say, very challenging to do. But the first thing we have to do is is to acknowledge how painful the critic is. When we when we acknowledge that, it, and we feel the suffering of being defeated, attacked, you know, diminished, put down, and feel the vulnerability under that, that allows the heart to feel a little warmth or tenderness. So, practically speaking, how would I do that? So. Maybe you're sitting in meditation. Maybe you've uh, been on the air that day and something didn't go so well and you're on your case because you, you know, could have done better, theoretically. And and then so your critic is just lashing out at you for whatever, being not, you know, perfect and being stupid or whatever. And so you shift from the thought and the critic to well how do you ask yourself how does that how am i feeling right now what, what, what how does that land how, you know what what do i feel in my heart or my body or my energy and so you shift from the thoughts to the feeling and um with that with that awareness of the feeling in my experience when we can acknowledge the suffering of something it doesn't create but it allows the conditions for 
a compassionate response to arise. It doesn't always arise, but it, it's, it's much more likely. And what would that compassionate res- response be when you're dealing with your own suffering? How would that, what would that look like? Um, well, the first response might be, oh, this sucks. Yeah. This is hard. Right. Yeah. You know, whether it's having, you know, maybe not performed well on a show or, you know, like, <laughs> it's funny, I was on this flight today and I had a choice, you know, to, to just sit out and wait for the next, you know, there was a bunch of flights canceled and then I was, I could have just waited there to get the next flight. Or I decided, oh, I'll just, you know, find the next best flight quickly and jump on a plane. And, and of course, I ended up making a decision that made me much later than if I just stayed behind. So my critic had a few things to say, like, why didn't you stay? Why? That was the most obvious thing to do. You know, there's a chapter in the book called 2020 Hindsight. The critic has 2020 Hindsight. Mm-hmm. And it's always on our case. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. You do the best you can. So I'm sitting on the plane, and my critics, yada, yada, yada. I'm like, and actually, I wasn't really taking that seriously. So, you know, because it was pretty clear and, and silly to be judging myself for that. The old you would have taken it the seriously. The old, yeah. yeah. And it's like, oh, God, I really can't do anything right. I really should listen. I should. So, um, but, you know, the times that, that I'm really suffering from the critic, and, and she's asking me about what a compassionate quality looks like. Um, it looks like, uh, and if, what it feels like is um, the word that comes up for me, rather than like, oh, you're stupid, you should have done more, you should have done better, it's like, oh, this is hard for you. This is hard for you. This is difficult. And there's something in the just acknowledging of that, that, that everything sort of drops a little. And there's just like, oh, yeah, this is hard. Yeah, I could have done better. I could have said this and done that. And I didn't, and it's a little painful, and I kind of feel regret, and a little silly, and a little stupid. And the whole thing is just a little icky. And I just hang out with that, oh, yeah, it's, that's not very pleasant. That's hard. So maybe you can move from mindless self-laceration to what the Buddhists call wise remorse. Wise remorse, and also just holding the pain of whatever the situation was. Yeah. Does it work all the time, or is this just, you know, sometimes this process works? Well, it works most of the time. My critic hasn't gone away. I mean, it's definitely a lot quieter, and I most of the time don't care whether it's, you know, if I'm late, for, you know, the, I, I make this joke when I'm, I'm going out to teach at Spirit Rock, you know, a few times a week. I'd like to cut my time a little fine. I hit traffic. I'm late for my meditation class, and my critic, and I know, like, the critics can say, why didn't you leave earlier? Why can't you get this together? Why can't you be more organized? And I'll say, thank you, Mr. Critic. Or I'll be leaving the house, and I can't find my keys or my wallet because I'm like that. I just <laughs> seem to live wherever they want to live. And my critic says, oh, you're so disorganized. And I say, thank you, Mr. Mindfulness wins the day yet again. <laughs> So I make a joke of it. So the humor is actually a really important quality in in the in the critic toolkit because we have to laugh at ourselves. We are strange, idiosyncratic, silly beings, and um, and the critic is also silly. And you just like having twenty twenty hindsight. Oh, you should have taken that flight. Mm-hmm. How did I know what flight to mm-hmm. take? <laughs> I don't know what freeway to take. Which one's the worst? You know the. So if we can find a sense of lightness in it, you know, I, I know, I, I know as you. 
be sitting these long retreats, I'd imagine wearing this gray wig, you know, the the, ju- the, the wigs that the old English judges wear. Bad meditator, <laughs> failure, <laughs> out. <laughs> you know, so kind of hammered up a bit, sometimes I exaggerate. Yes, I really am the worst meditator in the world. I am the worst friend in the world. I'm whatever you think. Yes, yeah, I, you know, I can't cook. Yes, no, and I can't meditate either. Okay, great. So the, if we can find a sense of playfulness, because... Humor does the same thing mindfulness does, which is it, it disengages us from being so identified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is why we love humor and why I love going to see stand-up comics. If people want to learn more about you, how and where can they do so? So um, my main website is markcoleman.org. That's Mark with a K. And uh, that will take you to many other websites, my awakenthewild.com website, which is my nature work, and my Mindfulness Institute, which is my mindfulness but if you go to markcommon.org, that's where most of my work and the information about the critic and my retreats and teachings. Um, my final question for you is what would it take financially, I don't know, whatever, what would it take for you, for us to get you to regrow the Mohawk? To regrow the Mohawk? <laughs> Oh, it wouldn't take much. I could take this headset off and I could rub my head and it would go up into a mohawk immediately. But I'd be happily to spray paint it white. It wouldn't take very much at all. Nice. All right. Um, Well, you've been a fabulous guest. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. You had a tough day. um, And you now have more traveling in front of you because you're heading up to the Insight Meditation Society Mm -hmm. in Barrie, Massachusetts, where everybody should go at least once in their lifetime um, because it's amazing. And you're going to teach a retreat with Sharon Salzberg. I am. Um, thank you very much. What a pleasure. Good to be with you. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at ABC News Podcasts. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. 
Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.